Hello, this is Tim, the lead pastor of Mosaic Portland, and welcome to the Mosaic Portland podcast. We exist to follow Jesus in authentic community for the world. And right now we're gathering Sundays online uh, to worship together and to open up scripture together. And then after that, we have virtual house gatherings that meet all over our city. And the great thing about these is that you can actually join in wherever you're listening from. We think these right now are the best way to be known, to connect with others, uh, and to be on mission together. They're also where we pray together on Sundays in smaller communities, where we take communion together and debrief what the talk was about and engage scripture more. If you want to find out more information of how to be a part of one in this season, you can find out more info on our website, mosaicportland.org. Now let's go to scripture together as we listen to this podcast. So good to be with you. I'm Tim. I'm lead pastor at Mosaic. And if you can, find a Bible and find your way to Psalm 97. Psalm is in the middle of our Bibles. Uh, it's in the middle of Scripture, and 97 is kind of whatever, like two-thirds of the way through the book of Psalms. So Psalm 97. Uh, today what we're doing is is looking forward to, to next Wednesday. This coming Wednesday is, is Ash Wednesday, and it begins this season of preparation for Easter, the season of preparation for the resurrection. Every year, followers of Jesus look at one date and go, this is going to be our Easter Sunday, our resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate, focus, reflect on the good news of Jesus, that he was born, lived, died on the cross, was buried in the grave, conquered death, and rose again. Now, Ash Wednesday, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a, it's a Wednesday that's been set aside. It's actually 40 days plus Sundays before Resurrection Sunday, before Easter. And followers of Jesus for centuries have marked this day as the beginning of an intentional time, an intentional season of preparation for Easter. And it's, it's typically characterized by and intended for uh, a season of self-reflection, uh, of confession, uh, repentance, uh, all intended to kind of culminate on Good Friday, commemorating the death of Jesus, so the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and then to celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, his resurrection. That's what Lent is. It's this, it's this period, and, and that is helpful and good, and we want to step into that, and we've been doing that as a church for a number of years. This year, as we think about those things of self-reflection and confession and repentance, all important things and necessary things, and we want to, to guide ourselves into those things, is that this year, because of what we've been living through as a world, certainly as a nation, as a city, and, and as a church, um, I think there has been a lot of, of self-focus already. And one thing that happens is when we focus on ourselves and, and just change, challenge, struggle naturally causes that to focus on ourselves, that's natural, and yet, if we only focus on ourselves and when we step into confession and repentance and self-reflection, we actually might get it off a little bit. It might be a little bit skewed. See, the hope of Jesus, when it comes to, to his good news, to his life, death, and resurrection, only happens in the context of if we understand who Jesus is. And if we're only looking at ourselves, it's easy to miss who he is. And we can only really see who he is if we understand who God is. A.W. Tozer said it this way, he's an author and a pastor, he wrote a number of years ago, he said, the most profound statement in the English language is, God is. Okay, I mean, I get that, that's, that's true, but, but what it does is it opens up this huge question of who is God. To say God exists is one thing, but then to know him and to have some kind of comprehension or understanding of who he is is a whole other thing. 
So let's look at Psalm 97 together and see where that takes us. Psalm 97, again, if you're not familiar with Scripture, if you looked it up on a screen or a phone, that, that, that's great. If you've got a, a Bible in front of you, a book in front of you, uh, Psalm 97, kind of right in the middle, says this. Listen to these words. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. And all people see his glory. That's, that's quite a description of who God is. What this is, is it's in written form. And again, the thousands of years ago that this was written. Psalm 97 is really, really old. It wasn't written. It wasn't typed in or text in or anything like that. It wasn't even written on paper. It was written even before that. But it was this attempt. It was this way to grasp at, to reach through language, human language, and to somehow grasp who God is and how great he is and, and, and to reach for descriptions of what it's like to, to know God's presence, of what it's like for God to, to be and to be here. Mountains melt like wax. That's one of the descriptions that it, it says. Mountains melt like wax. Like, what does that even imagine what that looks like? I've never seen mountains just melt. I did see a, a picture last week of just a small section of a road in a beautiful stretch of the California highway that overlooks the ocean in Big Sur County. And as you're driving through, and maybe you saw this picture too, but the part of the road fell away. Like it literally fell down, down the little cliffside and into the, the beach and the, and the water. That got national news. <laughs> Our whole nation saw that picture if they clicked on the particular news website I was on. We all saw that. That was a little piece of the road that, that fell into the ocean, part of, part of the Big Sur Highway. That's not a mountain. And imagine what it was like for a mountain to melt before the presence of God. That's what the author of Psalm 97 is, is reaching for and trying to grasp and say, with human language, with human words, how can we present and grasp and have some kind of concept of who God is. And it ends with, it culminates, this verse 6 kind of culminates and crescendos into this word glory, glory. And what there's a sense of is that this is beyond me. It's, it's hard to fully picture and understand. And you sense that the author, the poet, the songwriter is saying, this is who God is. And our human words fall short. We can hardly paint a picture of it. Brennan Manning, who he was a priest and then he felt called by God to be an itinerant evangelist and he's traveled all over the nation and, and the world uh, sharing the message of Jesus Christ. He ended up getting married, which priests don't do, so he was a priest and then he became not a priest and was an evangelist. And he had a lifelong struggle with alcoholism, which just humanized him in a way that he actually shared his story with vulnerability of how powerful Christ's love and forgiveness was in his life. And he's written a number of books that are so helpful. I've just recently read this one, uh, Ruthless Trust. Brennan Manning and Ruthless trust writes this listen to this no thought can contain him no word can express him he transcends all human concepts considerations and expectations 
He is the beyond in our midst, and though in our midst, still beyond anything we can intellectualize or imagine. Brendan Manning is reaching for and setting the expectation that our human words cannot contain God, that we can't fully articulate who God is. A biblical author did that as well, a prophet named Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 55, again, if you've got your Bible, flip over to that. It's later on after Psalm, the book of Psalms. Isaiah 55, and Isaiah is recording the words of God. God in God's voice, God's saying this about himself. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is, is simply sharing. We're not the same. I am utterly different than you. I am utterly set apart from humanity and from the created order. And he is saying, as human beings, as you seek to grasp and understand, not just with your mind, but also with your heart, to know who I am, just know this, your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not, the way that you approach the world, the way that you think about things, the way that you can grasp reality, I am above and beyond that. We're different in that sense. And then he puts in, which I find is really helpful, is this unit of measurement. He says, do you want to know how much we're different? It's as far as the heavens are from the earth. As far as the heavens are from the earth. Now, humanity, as long as we've been able to see, have wondered what's out there, what's above us, what's beyond, where is heaven? What is out there? And today with our technology, we have a way of actually seeing what's out there. So I want to ask you to do this, and I, I need to warn you ahead of time, this is going to involve some math or at least numbers. And so if you could maybe turn on another part of your brain for just a minute and, and walk down this road just a little bit with me to try to understand what God is saying when he's saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and this is how far apart we actually are in similarity. I don't know if you remember this, but last August there was a new galaxy discovered. It was reported at least in August of 2020 that a new galaxy was discovered. Well, that, that's a big deal. Galaxies are big things if you didn't know that. And so this is a big deal that a new galaxy was discovered. So uh, listen to this. The newfound galaxy is called, there's a name for it, and galaxies are these beautiful, amazing things as we see them on telescopes and those kind of things. And so here's the name that they gave to it. SPT 0418-47. That's the new galaxy. And given its great distance from Earth, astrologers see the galaxy as it was when the universe was just 1.4 billion years old, roughly 12 billion years before today. I warned you ahead of time there's going to be some math and numbers, and, and, and here we go. So they see a galaxy through a telescope, and, and they're seeing it when it was just, when the universe was just 1.4 billion years old, which was, according to them, 12 billion years ago before right now, or at least August when this was reported. So just to give you a little perspective in case you're like, well, I'm done, that's too many numbers and too far, and I don't get what you just did with time. Check this. The moon is 239,000 239, miles away. Okay, that's, that's really far. That's farther than a Prius probably goes. So it's, it's really, really far. Maybe it can make it that far. But here's what it means that it's that far away. It's, it's actually measured in, in the speed of light. So here's what this means. When we see the moon, we know this, maybe, maybe you know this. I, I didn't know this, I just, just learned it this week. When we see the moon, we're seeing it as, a, as it was 1.3 seconds ago. 1.3 seconds ago is what we're actually seeing because that's how long it takes to travel for light to bounce off and for us to be able to see it. That's how far it is. That's 
you know, you, you think that when you look at the moon, right? Oh, that's what it looked like 1.3 seconds ago. Now that I said that, it's 1.3 seconds ago from now. And, you know, it, it's really, really far, right? Now, the sun is not as much further than the moon, right? It's 92 million miles away. That's way, 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 way farther away. So just a perspective here. Now, the new galaxy that they, I found, they kind of say this. Alpha Centauri is the nearest star visible to the unaided eye in a distance that is 270 thousand times the distance between the earth and the sun 1.3 seconds to see where the where the moon is then the 92 million miles away and then multiply that by 270,000 that's that's the nearest star that we can see with with the unaided eye we're, we're not even to the new galaxy yet with that beautiful name it was the powerful Atacama large millimeter sublimate something array we're just going to call that ALMA. That's what scientists call it. That allowed astronomers to spy on this new galaxy. And it took all these antennas. It's in the Chilean desert. And they all kind of sync up. And they can look out into what feels like both not just space, but also time. Because it's so far that it can see. It can see all the way there. And get this, they can kind of barely see it, and they're seeing it reflected off something else. And so the way that they're seeing it and I'm able to assess it is this really complicated thing. And so they, they also tell us that the future telescopes, such as, and get this, this is the name of a future telescope that they're working on building. Extremely large telescope. I can pronounce that one. That's a great name for a telescope. Extremely large telescope. We'll peel further into the Earth's universe to better figure out how common that new galaxy shape was among the galactic population of that era. If that doesn't hurt your brain, then you are immensely intelligent and should get some kind of PhD and teach the rest of us how to think. My brain can hardly contain all of that, what that means of that it's so far away. I can't imagine how far that is. It's hard for me to imagine how far I've driven my 1997 Ford Explorer that doesn't work anymore because it just wore out because I drove it so far. I can't, distance to, this, to the moon is enough for me. The, the sun is a whole nother thing. To think that I'm seeing things that are actually in a different time because it takes so long for the light to bounce back, the image to my mind, that stretches the capacity of my mind. I'm actually not smart enough and haven't been trained enough to understand what humans can understand when they say all of that that we just heard. That is so far and so stretched up. It's important for us to begin to stretch our minds to comprehend barely some of that information because the Bible tells us that the God that it's telling the story of, God, we say this is God's word. The Bible is telling us about a God that holds all of that in his hand, that created all of that, that was beyond all of that, was far above all that, that is far beyond anything we can say. It's actually not a unit of measurement to say that above, far as above the heavens is from the earth is his thoughts above our thoughts. That's just a, a fancy way of saying infinity. We cannot stretch. God is so far above and beyond what we can imagine. The, the technical theological term is transcendence, that he transcends everything far above us. He is an infinite distance. And yet it's helpful to come to a place to understand what is it like for us as human beings to experience that God. And as Isaiah wrote about in, in chapter 55, and he recorded God's words about his thoughts and his ways being far above ours and different than ours, that he is so different. Isaiah also shares his experience of, of coming into contact with God, of experiencing God. And he says earlier in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, 
Turn there if you've got it in front of you. Listen to these words. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah talking, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And if you don't know about trains and, 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 and uh, of robes and in temples, if you're sitting on a throne, you're most likely in a temple. So that's, that's what Isaiah is seeing. Is he's seeing this image of God on a throne in a temple. And for kings and rulers and majesty who sit on thrones in temples, part of their, their power is measured by, part of their status is measured by the length of the train of their robe. And Isaiah says, God's train of his robe fills the entire space. It takes it all up. There's no other way to measure it. It fills it all. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. That's a lot of wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, so they could not see God. They could only hear his voice. With two, they covered their feet, and that's most scholars think that that means to say they would not take a step. They would not choose their own direction until they heard from God. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, and here's what they were saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's the word again, glory. Holy, holy, holy. Now, this is unique in the Old Testament, that a description of God or a description of anything is repeated three times. This is unique. It's the only place. That, and, and we kind of get it, but, but it's helpful if you haven't heard this before. When we repeat ourselves and say something was, was really big, in, in Hebrew, that would show up as big, big. It would just be the same word repeated. Big, big is, is really big. It's superlative. That, that's what it is. It, it, um, if, if something is, is pure gold, it would show up as gold, gold in the original language. And so we, we get that when it's repeated, it's superlative. We do the same thing when we, when we scream something and repeat something, or we just say the same word or text the same word over and over. We're, we're that excited, or it's that important, or it's that real, or it's that true. When we add a third... It's what scholars say is a super superlative. And basically, it's just a way of saying, you can't even imagine it. If something was in totality when it's repeated, if it's pure, if it's total, if it's already superlative, to add a third is basically to say, boom, we just moved to another category. It's beyond what you can measure. It's what people will eventually develop and their ability to see out into space and galaxies and see how far in the future. It's beyond what you can comprehend without somebody carefully walking you through to understand the measurement, the space, the grandeur, the size of it. When it says that God is holy, 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 what Isaiah is hearing and capturing and writing down for us to read and to celebrate and to sing in our own songs and to begin to stretch our minds and our hearts to comprehend. It is how perfect God is, how set apart he is, how different than us. And while we can try to measure out into space and get some faint sense of mountains melting in the presence of God, of how bigger and beyond God is, of how powerful and his size and all of that, when we talk about holiness, it brings it all of a sudden really close. That God is not just holding the universe in his hands. That God is not before all of time. That God is not just the strongest and the most powerful. But that he's also personal. And because he's holy, 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 there's a perfection in his character that actually isn't meant to be kept far away. 
but he's actually inviting Isaiah and in to see it close and then to share it with us so that we know him. And he ends this phrase, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The, full earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And in Hebrew, the word is kavod. And that word kavod, that word glory that we struggle to understand and wrap our minds around, and it shows up in scripture and we sing it in our songs and we actually attach it to other things in our human experience that that is glorious. And when it's in nature, we're attaching it to God ultimately, whether we know it or not. But sometimes you get a Christmas gift or sometimes somebody dresses up really well and you say they're glorious. That pales in comparison to kavod. When kavod is attached to God, when glory is attached to God, the simple definitions of its weight, and that, that can mean anything, it's heavy. And there's one definition I, I read said it's, it's, it's heavy, but it's, it's always and only figuratively and only for the good. We often attach heavy to some kind of negative connotation. It says, no, it's, it's heavy like it's weighted. The weight of it. C.S. Lewis says it's the weight of glory in his book. But it's the, it's the weight of God. And, and, and it has a sense that he's heavier than everything else. It can be measured on a scale. At the time this was written, they would have measured money and, and, and gold and silver and seeds and all sorts of things on scale to, to actually see which is heavier. And they put it on the scale and whatever one sank down, that was heavier. And it was objective, it was true, and it was measurable. They're saying, can you imagine God on a scale? Like it just wouldn't even be close. He's, he's just, he's weighty. And everything begins to orient around him because he is, in a sense, the heaviest, the weightiest. But it also means status. But more importantly for us, when we hear the whole earth is full of his glory, it means light, that he is bright, that he shines. Back in Advent, we talked about how Jesus is the light of the world. And before Jesus was the light of the world, God is pure light and brightness. And there's all places, all sorts of places throughout scripture that we can go to to talk about God being light and bright. One of my favorites is in Exodus chapter 33. Moses, who has been leading the, the, the people of Israel, he's led them out of slavery. God freed them from slavery, and they're out in the desert, and they're turning U-tunes for 40 years in the desert because God's raising up the next generation. And Moses, as he's leading them, goes up to the mountain to talk to God and to receive the tablets, the, the covenant and the law and the commandments for the people. And he's up on the mountain, and he says, God, show me your glory. And God's response to him is, you can't handle it. That would not be good for you. You would actually cease to exist. If mountains melt away, Moses, you don't stand a chance. You're a human man. I like you, but you couldn't handle it. And so I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to pass by behind you. And then I'm going to remove my hand and let you see. And we often hear it in his behind or back. We get the sense of like he sees God's shoulder blades as he walks off or the backside of him, and, and it's, it's different than that. It actually means when God passes by, what's there afterwards? It's like the, the presence that's there afterwards. Think of it this way. Uh, there's a cleft in my kitchen. It's, it's the sink, and when I'm in the cleft of my kitchen and I'm doing the dishes and I'm focused on that, I can't see everything else behind me. I'm only focused on this. That's the cleft in my kitchen. And sometimes I have, I have three sons, and they will run through the kitchen at times. And when they run through the kitchen, they pass through. And especially when they're chasing or fighting or playing, there is a presence that's left behind. There is a, let's say, a glory that's left behind. It's a stool that's teetering and about to fall over. It says, I swing around and look and notice that everything on the, that was magnetized on the refrigerator is done and on the floor. It's a cup of water on the counter that's turned over. And as I turn around, I catch the glory of my boys running through the kitchen. That's what more Moses gets. He gets, as God passes through, what's there? And to measure that and to conceptualize that in some way, we're told that when Moses comes off the mountain after getting the tablets and he walks down to the Israelites as they're waiting for him, and Moses comes down. 
And Aaron, his brother, and all of the people are afraid of Moses because his face is radiantly shining. And Moses isn't even aware of it, but his face is radiantly shining because he caught not God's face, not God's full presence, but the glory that was behind him, trailing behind him. And just that was bright enough to scare his brother and all the people that he was leading, that they stayed away from him till his face, the brightness of his face died down, the radiance of his face. When we think about the kavod of God, it is beyond us. And as much as that might sound and feel like God is distant, wait till we hear the very next thing that Isaiah says. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah responds, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah encounters and experiences the glory of God, the holiness of God, he is wrecked, he is ruined, a word that is attached to disaster and death and silence. And he thinks and says, woe to me, I am different, I am other, I am sinful. And of all the sins of the people that he could have picked, he starts with speech, which seems like such a common one. I am a man of unclean lips, even my lips are unclean. And he feels this distance from God, this abyss of otherness, of where God is, his thoughts and ways and character and presence and glory and majesty and worth of our adoration and praise and all that who God is. And Isaiah says, woe to me, I am wrecked, I am ruined. Later on in the New Testament, we read this, and this is for all of us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for all have sinned. For all, we could say, are unclean lips. For all have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up. And yet at the end of Romans, toward the end in chapter 11, we have what's called the doxology. Dox is the Greek word. The New Testament's written in Greek, the Greek word for glory or praise. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory, the doxa, the glory forever. Amen. And Paul has just gotten finished writing the story of all humanity and the hope that is found in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and how we are unrighteous but can become righteous and restored and rescued by the good news of Jesus because God is that good and loves us enough to send his son and so glory be to him, because he who is other than us and perfect and glorious came to us and came close in the person of Jesus Christ. And our response is in the very next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And the only way that we're able to do that as to the person and work of Jesus. And listen to this verse in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When we look at the crucified Christ, when we tell the story of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, when we look at our own lives in that lens, may we see who he is in all of his radiance, that he is the radiance of God's glory, that he is fully God. But when we look at Jesus, would we see the fullness of who God is, at least that our minds can comprehend and let it not stay in our minds, but sink into our hearts, that we would say that God that is beyond what I can fully comprehend and put words to and capture and fully understand, I can grasp and get images of and picture of and I can hear his voice and I can know him somewhat, that he is not a God just of transcendence, but also of eminence that comes to us. And as we look towards this coming Wednesday at Ash Wednesday, and as we look at the next 40 days plus Sunday, as we walk and prepare ourselves for Easter, would we begin with the glory of who God is, the glory of who God is in all of his perfection, in all of his holiness, in all of his power, in all of his might, in all of his weight, that he is far beyond and above us. And he is utterly different. There is nothing that we can do to become like him of our own power. We cannot grow into him. We cannot strengthen ourselves enough. We cannot re-engineer ourselves. We cannot be mindful enough to become him. But through the power and work and story of Jesus, we can experience his love, forgiveness, and restoration. I wanna invite you, as we walk towards Easter, to learn a new song with us. Right now, we're going to learn and sing. And so would you listen to the words of this song? Some of the, the best words in it are the, the, the crucified Jesus. No greater love. And so as we begin this 40-plus day journey of Lent, starting Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, would we look at Jesus and see the glory of God and his love for us? Let's learn this song together. <laughs>